You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Two words, grace and peace. The Apostle Paul begins his letter to the Galatians with those two words. That's his benediction. I want to just take a personal word and uh, a thanks, really, and share with you my friend Steve. Uh, I've mentioned him a couple of sermons before. He's passed away. He's gone to be with the Lord. Uh, but I want to thank you for your prayers and just let you know. Um, grace and peace were very active in his life to the very last day. Um, and it was a gift to him and a gift to me. So I thank you for those prayers. Steve is a guy, he's one of many people actually, that God used in my life to help me understand what it means to be alive in Christ. That's one of the three core experiences of sharing hope that we talk about here at UPC, being alive in Christ. It's the starting place. And so I want to begin my message here with you this morning with a definition. To be alive in Christ is to find life not in what you do, but in what Christ has done and is doing uh, in your life and in the world. Let me say that again. To be alive in Christ is to find life not in what you do, but in what Christ has done and is doing in your life and in the world. And there's a great biblical word for that, and it's the word gospel. And I want to reflect with you on, the, on that one word this morning, gospel. It's a word that Isaiah used in the 8th century when he looked forward to what God would do in Jesus Christ. It's a word that Jesus himself used as he began to talk about what he had come to do. And it's a word that the Apostle Paul used 60 times in his letters to unpack the beauty of what God had done for us and is doing in us. In Jesus Christ, gospel. As we gathered for my friend Steve's memorial service down in Menlo Park, California, two weeks ago, I was reminded of the Big Chill. Do you remember that movie from the night from 1983? It's when it came out. Some of you are old enough. I realize for many of you, it's all oldies. Um, but the Big Chill was about a, uh, was a movie about a group of friends who had been separated for 15 years, and they all came back because one of their group had passed away and. Uh, they spent the weekend in a house together, and they're talking about how what's changed. You know, the question really, as I watch that movie, is over the past 15 years, is the promise of the 60s enough for the uh, challenges of life? Because they'd gone through a lot of life since they were together. Careers that kind of come together and fall apart, marriages, divorces, um, addictions, all these things. Is the promise of the 60s enough for, for the, the real world challenges of life? It came to my mind because as uh, we were gathering for this memorial service for my friend Steve, there were a lot of us who were kind of having a reunion. I had gotten to know Steve in a small group, actually, at Newton Presbyterian Church in Boston. Uh, about 20 years prior, and um, every, almost every single member of that group was present uh, for Steve's memorial service. And I'm thinking, there's this question hanging out there. Um, is the promise of the gospel enough for the real world challenges of life? Because, you know, we'd been through a lot, this group of men and women, a lot individually. And of course, 
Steve went through a lot. We, we watched him die a horrible death at age 54, struggling for years with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a painful death. And there are many thoughtful people who were in the room for that memorial service that would have said no. And they would have offered Steve as exhibit A. The gospel is not enough for real life. But I want to tell you, none of us who were in that group and none of us who knew Steve and most especially not one of us who knows Jesus Christ could honestly answer that question negatively. No, the gospel is enough for everything that life will show, throw at you because of who Jesus Christ is. Now, I want to help you see that, but before I do, I want to invite you to consider what the letter of Galatians is all about. Because for me, this one letter that Paul writes to the church in Galatia is all about this one question. It's framed by the question, is the gospel of Jesus Christ enough for the real world challenges of life? Well, let's look at that as we begin this letter together. We're going to study it over the next nine weeks together. But open up your Bible, if you brought it, to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. If you didn't bring one, grab the black book and the rack in front of you and open to page 945. 945, that's the Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. And if you're able, will you stand with me? Let's read this in reverence to the one who is its real author, behind Paul, Jesus Christ. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaimed to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let that one be accursed. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Uh, the word gospel is a, a media word, ancient media. Howard Stearns tells us that he is the king of all media. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Uh, he certainly has had a lot of experience in the media, from uh, being newsman to radio shock jock, television host, and now, as you know, he's the, the one of the judges on America's uh, Got Talent. Certainly, he's the, one of the richest, most popular, most gifted, in many ways, uh, celebrities in uh, modern media in America today. And yet, Howard Stern has the honesty to admit that he is not fully alive, that he does not experience his life as fully alive. In 1997, he told New Yorker magazine, I always feel like I'm garbage. Pierce Morgan recently got him into a studio for an interview. He had read that Howard Stern always yearned for the approval of his father and rarely received it. And so Pierce Morgan probed 
on Howard a little bit. He says, how often does your father say to you, great show, Howard? Rarely, replied Stern. He said to me some years ago, and it really moved me, he said, you're a genius. And I was rocked because I never thought I'd hear those words. I didn't think I was ever going to earn that respect in my father's eyes. I think in many ways uh, with my career, I was searching for that approval from my father. And it's a very empty search, actually, because when you get it, it's almost too late. Here's a guy who's surrounded by human beings who offer him approval. He gets disapproval, too, by the way. But uh, he's surrounded by fans, essentially. Back in that New Yorker article, he reflects on what it's like to be so popular. Um, He says, I could do a book signing and see 20,000 people out there. And I don't feel great from that, which is a shame. You'd think that that kind of adulation would make you feel on top of the world, and yet I don't. I don't know why. You see, as I read... Paul's letter, I believe 2,000 years earlier, the Apostle Paul is trying to answer this question that Howard Stern can't answer. Paul's trying to tell him why. Why does he feel so bad, even though he's physically alive? Paul offers himself as a contrast, uh, as an example, when he says here in verse 10, am I now seeking human approval? As though human approval is not all that it's cracked up to be. I know that's hard to believe because we live in a day where we live for ratings. We live for followers. We want to have phone, phones that are filled with contacts. And we're really eager to get people to like our pages, if not ourselves. The Apostle Paul says, you know, human approval is not all that it's cracked up to be. Am I really seeking human approval or do I know something more than you do about this? The fact is that all of us, all of us crave human approval. I was reading an essay recently. One commentator said, our parents are metaphors for ourselves. We struggle for their acceptance as a displaced way of struggling to accept ourselves. See, looking for approval. The culture, he goes on, is likewise a metaphor for our parents. Our quest for high esteem in the larger world is only a sophisticated manifestation of our primal wish for parental love, which is a primal wish for our own acceptance. Now, most of us look in the wrong place. Robert McGee says the greatest lie of the evil one is that we must and can find approval in other people. He says in his book, he gives us a mathematical formula for it, self-worth equals performance plus the opinions of others. That's the lie that most of us live under. My self-worth equals my performance plus the opinions of others. Do you see how that's impossible to ever have a sense of real self-worth if that's where you derive it? Will you ever perform well enough? Will you ever do enough? Will people ever recognize who you are? Will will their opinions ever be high enough for you to really believe, I think I'm okay. I actually enjoy myself. I'm actually glad that I am who I am and that I am really alive. It's a gift. No, you're not going to find it in, in human approval. If Paul were after human approval, then the gospel would have proven itself insufficient. And he would not truly be a servant of Christ. But the answer to his question, which is hypothetical, is no. 
You're not serving, seeking uh, human approval. You have the gospel. So let's take a moment and, and work with this word gospel a little bit. What is it? What does it mean? Gospel. It's a real religious word we don't hear anywhere else. So we need to unpack it. It's actually a word that comes from the ancient media. The Greek word is euangelion. It's, it's uh, good news. It's you, which means well or good, mashed up with angelo, which is to announce or to proclaim. The gospel is a good proclamation. It's a good announcement. So it's good news. And it actually comes from ancient uh, news media. Here's how. Imagine that you live in an ancient city. And it's spring, which is the time when kings will go out to battle. And so you watch from your door or from the wall of the city as your king goes out, your armies go out, and they're going to some distant battlefield, you know not where. And then you wait. And you begin to wonder, how's it going out there? Because you know, if your king doesn't win, it does not go so well for you in the months to follow. They come back to the city, trust me. And so you're sitting on eggshells. You're twittering with anxiety. You're waiting and watching to find out what happens. Now, you're not reading the newspaper in the ancient world. You're not watching television. You're not listening to drive-time radio. Where do you get your news? You get it from a herald. A herald is a person who's present at the battlefield or who receives a message from somebody who is, who transports that message back to you in the city. And if it has gone well, that skinny little herald will raise a cloud of dust as he runs toward your town and he'll shout the top of his lungs, good news, the battle is over, the king has won, we win, we're free. And they called that in the ancient world, good news. It's a proclamation of good news, the gospel. It's the work that a herald does, because that's, that's reading the news. And then the reaction is joy. Because as the people near the, nearest the wall hear that, there's this wave of joy that rolls through the city as neighbor after neighbor turns and spreads the news to one another. Now, the problem is that many of us confuse good news with good advice. And we think that life is all about good advice. Now, this is an old distinction, but it's a very, very important distinction that you understand. Ask anybody at your local coffee shop this week, what is the heart of Christianity? And they'll say all kinds of good things. They'll say, oh, it's keeping the Ten Commandments or, or the Golden Rule or the greatest commandment to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor or whatever it is. And you'll say, yeah, that's all good stuff. But none of that is at the heart of Christianity because none of it's gospel. It's all good advice. See, the difference between good news and good advice is good news is something somebody else does for you and has fully accomplished it. Good advice is something you have to do for yourself. See, when the, the king doesn't send a herald but sends a military advisor, then you're in trouble. He's in trouble and he's looking for help and he's going to send the military advisor back to town to enlist you and bring conscripts back to the battlefield. And the advisor will tell you to stand here and hold your spear in this way and put archers over there. And that's what the world tells us life is all about. There are all kinds of institutions to give you good advice. The church is the one place where you should get no good advice. You should get good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is victorious. He has overcome 
the depths of sin, the power of death, the grave itself. He lives. Your king lives. You win. You're free. See, it's a huge difference. Good advice. It's all about you. Good news is all about Jesus. Good advice is all about doing. Good news is all about done. Good advice is all about fear. I hope this goes okay. Good news is all about joy. Wow, it went better than any of us could have imagined. See, Paul gives the gospel in sum here, and you can read it later in the first three verses of Galatians chapter one. This is the story of God who has... Uh, taken on flesh. The Son of God has come, we read in verse 1. He gave himself for our sins on the cross. We read in verse 3. He rose from the dead, verse 1, to make us free, verse 4, and make us beloved members of his divine family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So now you are in that circle of love. You are approved, and it's done. And you don't have to seek it, because you already have it. The gospel is enough for the challenges of life. It's not a task to do, but a message to be believed. And without even knowing it, the, God, the scary thing to me is that the Galatians have lost track of it. If you ask any of the Galatians if they believe in Jesus, they'd say, oh yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But Paul says in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted the one who called you in the grace of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm astonished you've lost God in all of your religiosity. Wow. They think they believe in the gospel. He says, but that's a different gospel. And he says, it's not even a gospel because it's not good news because someone has come from Jerusalem to convince you that now that you believe in Jesus, you also need all of the law. You need to become a proper Jew and be circumcised and be kosher and do all this stuff. We've got a long list of advice for you. And you guys have taken it all in and you've forgotten. This whole deal, life itself, is about grace. It's about an undeserved gift that God just wants to give you. And your life's a simple reaction to that grace. They're seeking approval from, I don't know, prestigious ambassadors who come from the great church in Jerusalem. Or more tragically, they're searching for approval from God who, who sits in heaven and says, I've already given you. I've already given you all the approval you could ever need. You're fine in my love. This word perverting the gospel means to reverse the gospel. You've changed it into its opposite. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. Don't reverse the gospel in your life. Jesus didn't come to make you more religious. He came to make you more fully alive. That's what he says in John 10.10. 10. I, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. Well, you'll never be fully alive as long as you're struggling to win the approval that you already have in Jesus Christ. You don't need the approval of your parents. You don't need the approval of your peers. You don't need the approval of anybody in the virtual or actual world. You don't need to pursue the approval of God because he's already given it to you in Jesus. You don't need Jesus plus anything else. You need Jesus plus nothing. I know why it's so hard for us to get that. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, this fictional collection of letters, one devil writes to another devil. He says, what we want if uh, people become Christians at all, he's representing a, a, a devil, what we want if people become Christians is to keep them in that state of mind I call Christianity and. 
You know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychological research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. You know, it doesn't, see, the point is, it doesn't matter what it is, anything you put after that and is going to twist or reverse the gospel. What we need to have approval in life is Jesus plus nothing. Can you imagine if, if approval was really so important to Howard Stern, how his life would have been so different if he knew that God already delighted in him, the God, the one who made him, with all of his gifts, how different would, would his career be? Or maybe will his career be? I, I begin to wonder what will happen of my life if I stop obsessing about my constant need for approval, to be approved by you, to be approved by those folks out there, to be approved by my parents or even by God, and to start living in the freedom. And for laying aside all the performance scripts that say, if I only do something cool, something smart, something beautiful, something wise, something good, if only, if only, if only, God says, no, 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 I've already done. Come to believe that maturity is not about living a certain number of years or having a certain range of experiences. Real maturity is about saying the right thing to yourself in the face of life's challenges. It's about really being able to own the gospel. They did a study a few years ago on college athletes. It's a three-decade-long study. They asked successful college athletes, tell us your most painful memories from youth and high school sports. And what most of the athletes said was, the ride home in my parents' car. I, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a well-intentioned parent, but I've said all these things, things like, uh, you know, why'd you swing, swing at the pitch that was too high? You know, or you've got to be alert at the net. And unintentionally, it's communicated to these athletes that you're only good enough if you do blank. They asked the same group, what enhanced your joy? What made you feel really great? And the consensus answer on that question was six words. When my parents said to me, I love to watch you play, that was it. See, because there's no pressure there. It's because I already love you, and what, what, what gives me pleasure is not your success, it's you. It's because you're my child, and how many of us have watched our kid go back into left field with the glove open and the eyes closed, and everybody's on the bleachers, and they go back, and they go back, and they go like this, and they feel the impact in their glove, and it rolls right to the ground, and you go, I love that kid, that's my kid. <laughs> Those six words, we should be saying them to our children, I love to watch you play. But I want you, even more importantly, to know those six words, you need to hear them said to you. You need to know that your Father in heaven, God Almighty, looks at you, is not trying to get you to do anything today, just wants you to know, I love to watch you play. Rachel Held Evans recently wrote on the, in a blog, he loved the world enough to experience all of its pain alongside of us, alongside of you. This is the God who, as Nadia Bowles-Weber puts it, would rather die than be in the sin accounting business anymore. This is the God who loves to watch us play. And if this morning you feel like God's kind of fed up with you, he's kind of getting weary of you, you know he's supposed to love you, but it's really hard for him, you need to hear this word. Rachel Held Evans says, maybe some of us need to hear him say, I love to watch you write. I love to watch you bake. I love to watch you nurse. I love to watch you read to your kids at night. I love to watch you care for the sick. I love to watch you take pictures. I just love to watch you study. I love to watch you laugh. 
I love to watch you seek the truth even when it's hard. I love to watch you be the church together even when it's imperfect. I love to watch you love one another even when it seems impossible. Not because you do any of these things well, but because you do them as my children. God delights in you. Is the gospel enough for the real world challenges of life? Absolutely. Because the one who loves you is the one who promises to give you life and the one who conquered death. There's nothing they can take away from you that would diminish that love in the least. So let me ask you, is the gospel enough for the challenges of your life? Now you think about it, for you personally. Or do you need another gospel? And by the way, I want to ask you, what is your other gospel? You know, it's probably not the same one they had in Galatia, but I want, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet there's something else in your life that steals your joy and throws you into fear on a daily basis. That's your other gospel. And it'd be really helpful to think about that today and maybe even to share that with someone else. You know what my other gospel is? So we're gonna invite you to leave that one behind today and go out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to be a community here that hears good news. We stand on the, on the parapets of the city. We listen to the herald on a daily basis. And then there's a ripple of joy that runs through us and beyond these walls out into Seattle that says, Jesus is victorious. We've been set free. The battle is over. I want to be a community who, in the formula of uh, Ray Ortland, says that real life equals Gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel, we need to all hear good news, grace, unconditional love. We need to hear it again and again and again. And then safety. We need to hear it in an environment where it's okay to be me. Where even with my sin, I can still be loved. We need a place where there isn't condescension or judgment or criticizing. Where it's okay to be you. In process, unbaked. Safety, gospel plus safety, and then plus time. Because real change takes time. Let's be honest, we're complicated people and we face real challenges in life and it's not so simple. But if you give me time, then I'll grow. And not a place where there's manipulation or, or quick fixes or easy answers, but a place where I can sit and really absorb the gospel of Jesus Christ and watch him make me fully alive. To be alive in Christ is to find life not in what you do, but in what Christ has done and is doing in your life and in the world. Let me close with a story from my friend Steve. Um, not long before he died, we were praying together on the telephone. And as we prayed, it was clear to me he was visualizing something because he started to pray in terms of the prodigal son, that story that Jesus told, you know, the son who goes to the distant country and it was... Steve must have been thinking of himself as in the distant country, this dry and waterless place where he was sort of losing everything, losing his family, losing his health, losing his life. And he was saying, God, I see you like the waiting father, you know, who, who comes to the edge of his field every day and scans the horizon looking for his beloved child. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a spark in his voice. And it was like he was seeing something he had never seen before. And he said, no, God, you're not our waiting father. You're not waiting. You're running. 
You're hitching up your robe. You don't care what anybody thinks. You're running towards me. You're running to grab me into your arms and take me home. And I don't know what that was. I wondered at the time, was this some kind of special grace that God gives somebody who's on the doorstep of eternity? But I know for me it was a gift. It was Steve's last witness that in death and in life, we belong to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, um, forgive us for thinking life is something we bring to the equation. Forgive us for thinking that life is something that we can generate or that we can coax out of other people, humans. Lord, open up our hearts and make us fully and finally receptive to your life in Jesus Christ and the good news that we already belong to you, that you love us, you delight in us. We just need that to soak in today. Soak in so much that it begins to overflow and it becomes a gift that we not only receive but that we share with one another. We pray your Holy Spirit make us fit for that task. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.